0: What a wonderful opportunity it is this Lord's Day morning, many comments already having been made about the degree of warmth that is to be appreciated outside the building, and oh what great Christian warmth there exists within as we fellowship with one another and with God as well, the glory and beauty of being children of His, and to appreciate the blessings that we enjoy from His bountiful and wonderful hand each day. It is indeed good for us to be here this morning, and already the songs have lifted our spirits The consideration in prayer has turned and tuned our mind to things of divine nature. And as we consider the lesson beginning at this point, you've probably already noted in the bulletin as well as the screen or the wall to my left a bit of a unique title, I would presume, A Biblical Study of Sleep. I first want to preface the discussion, the sermon, if you will, by asserting that it's not my intent to put anyone to sleep. It is not my intent to encourage drowsiness, sleepfulness, or other things, at least for the next little while. However, it would seem interesting that the Bible often discusses sleep, and it does so so very often in such a variety of ways that there really are a host of lessons that you and I can can draw from them, perhaps by way of introduction. Just to get things started for our discussion this morning, isn't it amazing? That sleep is something that everyone does at one point or another. Perhaps on average, roughly a third of our life, perhaps a bit less devoted to sleep. And yet, there are still many things about it that scientists do not understand. Medical professionals do not fully appreciate. In fact, considering the fact that scientists still theorize about it, psychologists consider and make ponderances concerning it, medical professionals will encourage one with respect to it. And yet still, there are many things about it that are not fully understood and known. But yet, who among us doesn't appreciate an afternoon nap every now and then? Who among us doesn't appreciate the restfulness and refreshing action of a night of sleep? To say those things is to say that, of course, the Bible does mention sleep very often. I've only chosen a small sampling of texts but nonetheless the circumstances concerning them will easily remind us of how often sleep is discussed. In Genesis chapter 2, God brought a deep sleep upon Adam and removed from his side a rib and forthwith fashioned a woman and brought her to him. Later, do we not see in Genesis 28 that Jacob used a stone for a pillow and slept wonderfully and saw a ladder reaching into heaven and an angel ascending and descending upon it. One more time, sleep is made mention of, of course, in the Holy Scriptures even there. As we come to the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 4, what took place on that occasion when, in fact, Sisera went to sleep, never to wake again in this life. Jael, of course, drove a tent peg through his temples while he was asleep and ended Sisera's life. Later, was it not true in Judges 16 that while caressed in the arms of Delilah, Samson went to sleep to wake to find that his hair had been cut? Do we not read in other instances where sometimes sleeplessness is noted? In Daniel, for instance, the sixth chapter, as well as in Esther, the sixth chapter. On one occasion, the king, of course, was a bit sleepless because he had, of course, thrown Daniel into a den of lions. And when he went to sea, he saw something interesting there. On another occasion, it was, of course, the king in the book of Esther, Ahasuerus who was unable to sleep one night, and upon reading the chronicles of the kingdom, appreciated the loyalty and the allegiance of a man named Mordecai. We could extend that list considerably, but perhaps briefly in the New Testament, isn't it also fair to say, one could make mention that our Savior slept. Remember the instance, for instance, mentioned in Mark chapter 4, when he was on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, he, he was asleep, but the disciples were terrified. On another occasion, in Acts chapter 20, a gentleman named Eutychus fell asleep in a sermon, fell to his death. Those instances are ones that could again be many times multiplied. It was merely my hope to at least remind us how often God makes of sleep in his words. And interestingly, there are instances when it's not merely physical sleep that's under discussion. There are times when it has great spiritual meaning, tremendous spiritual import. And before our lesson is finished today, we also shall in fact broach those very same subjects. May I submit to you there are four lessons that I would desire us to draw from the Word of God today as it relates to sleep. The first is perhaps the most obvious. Would you notice with me how that sleep is a blessing from God? I've listed some thoughts to help you and I understand the nature of what can be said about it, first from our own experience, and then later we'll use the Word of God as our guide, of course. I mentioned earlier that scientists certainly do not know nearly everything there is to be known about sleep, but there are some things that not only do scientists tell us, there are also certain things that our own experience seems to easily reveal. The first might well be stated as this. During sleep, the body attains a degree of refreshment, a degree of rejuvenation thats that it is unable to obtain while away. That degree of refreshment, that revitalization that occurs with respect to the human body is a grand blessing from the God of heaven. It is during sleep, for instance, that the heart rate slows the breathing rate slows, the body enters into a state of restful repose in which it's able to, in fact, rest from the labors of the previous day or the previous hours. To say something like that, though, does maybe note something else that may be a little bit less familiar to us. During sleep, it seems as though the degree of cell repair, cells in your body and mind, and the degree of cell growth is greatly increased. That is to say, while we're asleep, the body repairs itself. Its cells undergo a degree of replacement, a degree of, again, fixing that which needs to be replenished. Perhaps most amazingly of it is during sleep, of course, that the brain does not rest at all, really. For while you and I are asleep, the brain does, perhaps, its most notable work of sorting and organizing information. Now, that's utterly remarkable. While the body is at rest, the mind is fully engaged in the assortment and organization of the data to which it has been faced in the previous day or the previous amounts of time. And thus while we're asleep is when we often process and synthesize best the organization before us. After all, are you and I not aware that when you and I go without sleep too much, we can't think clearly? We are not as efficient in our thinking and logical prescription as we otherwise are. And the reason is that it's during sleep that that great organization is so easily accomplished for the human brain. That leads to one very quick conclusion. It's important merely for good health to obtain adequate breath and to obtain adequate sleep. But I would ask that, of course, far different from those things, what does God's Word say about the blessing of sleep? It was read in our hearing a few minutes ago from the twelfth verse of Ecclesiastes 5. I'd invite your attention back to that interesting text. Notice there it says that the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Isn't it amazing to contemplate the degree of tiredness that may well accompany us and be a descriptive of us after a day of labor, after hours of work, and then to lie down in restful repose from the aftermath of that labor. The body can revitalize, replenish, and rejuvenate itself, all the while the brain can continue to sort and organize data The sleep of a laboring man. Swift. You and I can see that that's a part of the design of God. He didn't design the body to work tirelessly 24 hours a day, 7 days a week without rest. Even in the Old Testament, to look at that from a different perspective, the Sabbath was to be a day of no work—at least one day of the week. You were to rest and to focus on things spiritual and caring. What we see, even innately built into the functioning of the human body, is the need for rest. The body needs to have a degree of repose, the sleep of a laboring man. Is with. Jesus slept, as we noted a moment ago, in Mark the fourth chapter, just one example. Isn't it interesting there that after the greatness of that previous day, when he had been so busy and active in teaching the nature of the kingdom and the precepts of the gospel, that on that ship on the Sea of Galilee, the Savior was asleep. In fact, a storm arose on that occasion and the disciples were frantic. Master, carest thou not that we perish? They went and woke Jesus up. And of course, he said, Peace. Peace Still Stealing that storm taking care of their fears and anxieties and cares. It's an amazing thing to consider our Savior was, of course, asleep, easily understanding the need for that degree of refreshment in His body. It is interesting also to add that there is one adjective in that verse we noted that we shouldn't pass too quickly. The sleep of a laboring man. We understand that when we get so tired, When we have worked, say, so diligently, it seems that the need for sleep is then so acute and it is so pressing. In fact, have you ever found yourself in a position when, for instance, after a long period of intense labor and effort, you are both hungry and tired. And it's not unusual to appreciate that you go to sleep first. The food you want. Isn't that what Solomon here indicated for us? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat or not. That verse does close, though, by saying that the abundance of the rich will cause him to have no sleep or little sleep. That's one of the final points of this opening slide. Is that not at least an indirect statement to the importance of word? That it is the intent of the God of heaven for you and I to be busily active in accomplishing the things that he has given us to do? In fact, in Genesis 2.15, the very first, Namely, Adam and Eve, they were given chores to accomplish, work to be done, to dress and to keep the garden. Do we not see that, of course, in Genesis 3.19, after the entrance of sin, one more time, Adam was told, By the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. He would have to toil and labor his food. Throughout the sacred text of the Bible, that does not change. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, We notice that powerful commandment that we, of course, should study to be quiet and to work with our hands the thing that we Work is a thing that is good for us. In a materialistic world, sometimes that is not believed. It's believed that the more work one can get out of, the better it is. Now, there is nothing, of course, wrong with accomplishing work efficiently and accomplishing it in the best way possible, but to avoid it altogether. Or to try to get out of, it complete, is not within the confines of the commandment of heaven, is it? In fact, when you and I are busy working, not only does it give the body things to do, but that idleness is not ours. Isn't it true that when we're idle is often when impure thoughts cross our minds? When we're idle is when we get busy doing things we ought not to be doing in the first place. We need to be busy. We need to work. Thus, as we teach our children the importance of work and how that that work is an essential ingredient of what God has given for the human family, it is something that we see here that they will come to appreciate sleep. For after all, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. When one can go to sleep and wake up several hours later, perhaps after a short nap or after a full night of rest, it's such a refreshing thing to arise to a new day, to appreciate the potential and possibility that's now before us. These opening comments have whetted our appetite for what else the scriptures may say about sleep. In addition to it being a blessing from God, it's also to be noted that there are occasions when it can be abused. Yes, indeed, sleep can be abused. Let's discuss that a bit more quickly. That text that we just noted from Ecclesiastes 5, is one where we noted that a laboring man's sleep is sweet. But notice what Solomon also had to say in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 15. Found in the heart of this interesting book of poetry, the inspired writer said, Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. Now Solomon, could you repeat that? Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep. And that word slothfulness means laziness. Laziness allows one to sleep more than what would be reasonable or more than what one ought to. Hours that could be spent efficiently and productively in the accomplishment of something useful are spent sleep. Spent in slumber, in which that which could have been accomplished is left undone. Notice here that slothfulness casteth into a deep slumber. We noted earlier that those who are laborers are in need of sleep. But here we notice even those that are lazy still sleep, don't they? But there, their sleep is not the sleep of a laboring man. It's the sleep of a lazy man. It's the sleep from which they have done no work to warrant the greatness and fullness of God. The fairness of this text is only amplified when we turn back to Proverbs chapter 6. For in fact, there's a direct commandment found in Proverbs chapter 6. And it is stated so bluntly that it's difficult to miss the point. Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. That's a direct command. Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. Solomon, are you saying we then ought never to sleep? Well, of course not. But what does the context indicate? What is under discussion? The verses that follow, in fact, beginning in verse 4, describe a creature known as the ant who labors abundantly and powerfully providing for himself during the course of the winter. What he's discussing is those who are lazy. The lazy man is thus he ought not sleep so much. He needs to provide for himself and his family by active working, taking care of those things that God has given him to do. Give not sleep unto thine eyes. The statement therein found, namely in Proverbs chapters 6 as well as chapter 19, leads us to see that the love of sleep can be a very dangerous thing. That person who just so greatly enjoys it and wants to sleep so much in the interest of laziness, listen to how that's stated in Proverbs 20 verse 13. Love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty, open thine eyes, and thou shalt be satisfied. Love not sleep. We each enjoy it in the aftermath of labor and work and toil and affliction and persecution. We often enjoy sleep in those times, but to pursue it, ceaselessly, to pursue it far beyond that which is appropriate. Notice has gone beyond the command of God. Love not sleep. Now, he didn't mean that we can't enjoy a night. He didn't mean that we can't enjoy a restful night of sleep. Again, the context indicates He's speaking about those who in slothfulness sleep their life away rather than engaging in the activities which they have been given to do. It is an amazing thing to consider in Proverbs 24. We have an extended discussion and I would invite your attention as I read that. Proverbs 24, we'll begin reading in verse number 30. Proverbs 24, verse number 30. It's a very visual text, and I suspect you can even gra- you can even visualize it as I read it. Solomon says, I went by the field of the slothful, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that travels, and thy want as an armed man. Solomon said, as I was traveling and walking, I passed by the vineyard of a lazy man. The wall was broken down. It was grown over with thorns and metals. He had not labored to keep the vineyard up. And isn't it interesting, in verse 32, Solomon said, I learned something from that. I learned something from that observation. Three says I received instruction. What did he learn? First, 33. three. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, and what happens? It brings problems. That man who could have had an active, productive, efficient, and very powerful vineyard has nothing to show for it. He's wasted the ground on which that vineyard rests. He's wasted the other things related to. It. That says something about the wastefulness that's incorporated into you and me when we in laziness sleep our life away, does it? For after all, God has given us bountiful talents, capabilities and gifts that you and I only are able to use. He hasn't given them to everybody else. We refuse to use them because of our sleepfulness and to given us the us to laziness. We are in fact turning our back upon God. We're refusing to use those. He's given us, refusing to accomplish what we could with what we had. In these texts, we see that God gives us a warning about laziness and desiring sleep too much. Now, might we say that in light of these opening two lessons, we've learned that namely sleep is a great blessing from God when it is approached properly, used appropriately, but when we go beyond that which the Scriptures have led us to appreciate we waste too much of the time of our life in laziness and sleep. We bring upon ourselves, in fact, the disapproval of heaven. But what about a third lesson? Something else to challenge us in regard to the subject of sleep. This one, notice some of the texts that sleep is discussed in the following one. The Bible quite often uses sleep as a comparison to spiritual slumber. Perhaps I need to explain that just a bit, and perhaps the opening statement on the slide will help us understand that point. When a person is asleep, he or she is unaware of that which is taking place around him. For example, how often do we read in the news that perhaps a person who falls asleep in the house catches fire in which the person is dwelling? The fumes overcome him or her and take him into a deeper state of unconsciousness and he burns up in fire. Wholly unaware of the conflagration going on around him. How can that be? It's because in sleep we are unaware, by and large, of the fullness of those surroundings around us. And that's the whole point of sleep's comparison to spiritual slumber. When a person is spiritually asleep, Oh, he may well be physically awake, but he's unaware of the spiritual dangers around him. He lives as though there are none of those dangers. And thus, in his ignorance of them, or in his refusal to be aware of them, he treads lightly in matters where there's great danger. Satan gobbles him up with great little. It is an interesting thing to be aware. We must be watchful spiritually, not sleep. Never does the Bible encourage us to be asleep spiritually. Rather, it encourages us to be wide awake and ever aware of the dangers about us from the temptations of Satan, ever aware of the matters concerning eternal benefit in heaven and that we must work toward them. Some of the texts that seem so powerful in this way are from the hand of the Apostle Paul. I would invite your attention to the 13th chapter of Romans. In Romans 13, would you begin reading with me verse 11? Romans 13, verse number 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. What a beautiful and yet dramatically powerful text. Paul says, brethren in Rome, it's time to wake up. Your salvation is nearer than it has been in the past. Arise out of sleep. He wasn't talking to folks that were physically asleep. He was giving warning to those that were spiritually asleep. It's time to wake up. It's time to be aware of that which is going on around us spiritually and to take appropriate activities and measures with regard to it. Notice the reference to sleep. Here is one of those texts when he isn't discussing physical sleep, it's spiritual sleep as a problem. And they are urged and admonished and in fact commanded to wake up, to be aware of what's going on about you and to work toward the end of the accomplishment of the will of God. Isn't it also rather incredible that in that same text he says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. If you and I could put that in figurative language, he's saying, the sun is now up, daylight's here. Wake up out of your spiritual slumber. For what's more, verse number 12, let us cast off the works of darkness. The night's over. Let's get these. Isn't it interesting to see then that here is another one of those instances when spiritual slumber is not only not encouraged, it is commanded against. But consider another again from the hand of Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 14. And In this occasion, Paul even makes it a bit more strong. In that text, he simply says, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee life. It's almost as though that's on the border of exclamatory. In other words, an exclamation point is with it. Awake out of sleep, he told the Ephesians. Just as surely as the Romans needed that warning to wake up out of spiritual slumber, so too the Ephesians needed it. Arise, thou that sleepest, arise from the dead. Notice, he called them spiritually dead because they were asleep spiritually. They were not accomplishing the work of Christ. They were not busily doing those things that had been commanded of them. They needed to wake up. And as they woke up, they were of course recognizing in verse 14 that Christ should be the right. The fact of that text perhaps leads us to one other. The one seen in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 6. In the closing chapter of that 1 Thessalonian letter, again Paul had words to speak relative to this matter of spiritual slumber. This time again, the wording is short, and it reads as follows. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. Isn't that a rather amazing conclusion? Let us not sleep as do others. May we remind ourselves, he is again not talking about physical sleep. He is not saying it's sinful to take a night physically or to enjoy a night of sleep physically. But what he is saying is spiritually we must never fall asleep. Never are we to be those engaged in spiritual slumber, oblivious and unaware of the danger spiritually about us. Those that are unwilling and uninterested in accomplishing the work of God, but rather just to be asleep spiritually. It is a rather dire warning, isn't it? I've also included on that listing one other text that is, of course, just the opposite. Here, Paul said, let us not sleep. But what did Jesus say? With regard to his second coming, he said, I command you as all others, watch. One can't be asleep and watchful at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. If we are watchful, we can't be asleep. if we're asleep, we can't be watchful. And yet Jesus says, No man knows the day nor the hour of my coming. Therefore, watch. Matthew twenty five thirteen. You and I thus must not be those that take spiritual naps, that slumber spiritually, but rather we must not so sleep, but ever be ready and aware to engage in the work set before us by the great God of heaven, understanding that we too one day shall be able to rest from those labors just like the sleep of a laboring man. Revelation 14, verse 13. These bring us to the fourth point in our lesson, and in fact the final lesson that we'll draw from the study of sleep today. For the last part of this particular lesson perhaps relates to one aspect of sleep that's already occurred to you. When you and I take a nap, perhaps as some may this afternoon, or perhaps as we shall tonight at the close of this Lord's day, we understand and look forward to that opportunity of rising Monday morning. We look forward to waking up. Well, notice the Bible also discusses sleep from the standpoint of what happens when you wake up. And in fact, it uses it as a comparison for physical death. Consider some of these passages with me as we look at this last point in our lesson this morning. How often do we read of occurrences in the Scriptures when someone was told, Thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. As Moses, Abraham, and other great notable characters of faith in the Old Testament, there we know that they were not being told you're going to fall asleep physically. The fact you'll sleep with your fathers was a beautiful metaphor for discussing death. You'll pass from the scenes of this life, sleep with your fathers, and be with them. Notice there, sleep doesn't have anything to do with physical sleep. Notice this discussing death. In what other ways might that discussion be seen in the Scriptures? In Deuteronomy 31, 16, Moses was told that he'd sleep with his fathers. Also in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, David was told he would sleep with his fathers. And in fact, I've listed there for your consideration over 55 times phrases like that are found in the Holy Word of God. But amongst those 55 times, notice some specials that were used by both Daniel and Jesus. In the 12th chapter of Daniel, the closing chapter to that prophetic book in the Old Testament, the special statement was there made that, in fact, they that are asleep in the dust of the earth shall rise. Well, again, that seems a clear reference, doesn't it, to the fact these have died, but there will come a time they shall wake up in an event known as the resurrection. Or consider Jesus' reference when he was standing there before the tomb of Lazarus in John 11. Jesus very directly said he is asleep. Now, you might remember that there were some who didn't understand the usage of the Savior's word, and they laughingly and mockingly said, if he's asleep, he's doing well. Jesus knew that Lazarus had died, but he also knew what was going to happen. Four days later, he would arrive at that tomb and call forth Lazarus, come forth. You see, sleep also seems to be used in the Bible on more than one occasion as a reference to death. Let's investigate that just a little bit more. Further and appreciate it just a little bit more deeply. When the time comes that you and I face death, we understand that that immortal part of us, of course, does not die. You and I are immortal spirits, Genesis 1.26. In Ecclesiastes 3, we quickly read that spirit returns to God that gave it. When you and I thus see a corpse, a body lying in a casket we should understand that that body is termed dead because the spirit has departed. James 2.26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. That body has its spirit now departed, and hence that which is left behind is said to be dead. But might we notice interestingly and powerfully that that spirit is not dead. That spirit that has departed the body is alive and well elsewhere. In that realm known as Hades, that realm is experiencing something, either comfort or torment one or the other. But notice, beautifully and brilliantly and powerful, the scriptures remind us of the fact there shall be a resurrection. That body that's now dead lying in that castle, Jesus said there's coming a day when it'll wake up. It'll be resurrected for indeed Christ is the first fruits of them. First 1 Corinthians 15. Is it not easy for us to see that in that sense sleep can be likened than death, Just as you and I will end our sleep by waking up physically, so too there shall be a grand, grand day when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. To quote Jesus' words in John 5, 28-29. The scriptures frequently make mention of that avenue of comparing death to truth. In fact, on that occasion, would it not be reasonable to read Daniel's famous statement, the one to which we referred earlier in Daniel chapter 12, verse number 2. In that text, God revealing through Daniel this comparison looked forward so very long in the future to the resurrection. And these are the words, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those that are asleep in the dust of the earth, those that have died, their spirits have gone elsewhere to await the great morn of resurrection, but he says they shall awake. Just as surely, as you and I anticipate the waking up from a nap or an evening of rest and sleep, so too we can rest assured that there shall come a time when there will be a waking up in the event of that great resurrection. It's interesting to see how all of these work together. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Yes, indeed. But does that not teach us the importance of understanding the error of spiritual slumber? To be busy and active and working spiritually to the accomplishment of eternal glory for us. And then, seeing also the interesting statement about that spiritual slumber and its danger. That leads us to the final point of, again, the comparison of death to There shall come a time that, of course, all of us shall awake in that great resurrection. Will you have been found in spiritual slumber at that point? Or will you, by virtue of the activities of your life, be described in the words of Revelation fourteen thirteen? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from what? Their labors. Their labors, their labors, and their works do follow them. Those who died in the Lord had labors by which in this life they had worked on behalf of the cause of the Savior, and they had passed this life prepared to meet him in judgment. Is that description of your life today? It's my hope that this consideration of sleep this morning has challenged us to appreciate its blessing, but to look forward to spiritually not being involved in the slumber associated with it. Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. If we might be enough of assistance this morning to any in your obedience publicly to the gospel, it would be our joy and privilege to assist you. The first step on the road to arising out of spiritual slumber is to become a Christian. Jesus said, "Except ye believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins." John eight twenty four. He also directly said. But except you repent you shall all likewise perish, Luke thirteen, five. Furthermore, he's told us in Matthew ten, thirty two and thirty three, Except ye confess me, I will not confess you before my father as well as the angels. And finally did he not say, He that believeth and baptized shall be saved. Mark sixteen sixteen. Today have you thus believed, repented, confessed, and been baptized. If you haven't been, let today be the day you make a public affirmation and statement a proclamation forevermore of your reliance upon the Savior to not be involved in spiritual slumber and sleep, but to be those that are interested and active in His labor. If you have become a Christian, but maybe you have taken a spiritual nap and just haven't wakened up yet, maybe you're in this state of spiritual slumber you need to wake out of. Let us not forget again those words of Ephesians 5.14, Awake thou that sleepest! Arise from the dead! If you're spiritually asleep today, wake up at once. Let the very nature of the gospel touch your heart and come back to your first love even now while together we stand and while we sing.